Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 237 recap on the Twitter spaces. We have a couple special guests today, one of which is hopefully joining us shortly. I don't think there's any announcements on my side before we do some introductions and jump into covering the newsletter. Merch, any announcements on your side? Nope. Everything smooth sailing. Well, I'll start off. Mike Schmidt, contributor to Bitcoin Optech and also executive director at Brink, where we fund open source Bitcoin developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs. I contribute to Bitcoin stuff. Carla, do you want to give a little bit of your background and what you're interested in and working on? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Carla. I'm also a software engineer at Chaincode, currently sitting in the booth next to Merch. I work on Lightning things, currently focused on figuring out some of the jamming mitigations that we'll talk about today. And then also working on route binding for LND, which is a part of the bigger offers effort that Lightning is working on at the moment. Excellent, Carla. Th thank you for joining us. We have one news item before yours, and I think we could just jump into it. I will share some tweets so that folks can follow along. But look for the Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 237, and you can find that on Twitter or BitcoinOps.org to, to follow along if, if you're not doing something else. The first news item for this week is discussion about storing data in the blockchain. Wow, a hot button issue that made its way to the mailing list. I think we covered this slightly a few weeks ago with the Stack Exchange, which folks were looking at these interesting transactions and wondering what was going on. And folks pointed to this ordinals group that was doing inscriptions. And there's been a lot of discussion and debate on, on Twitter about this, but it, it finally made its way to the mailing list. So we cover it here in the Optech newsletter this week. And it looks like there's a lot of discussion about this topic, so maybe we'll cover it next week as well. Merch, what do you see on chain? Maybe we could start with, with some of the data and we can talk about, I guess we can recap also exactly the mechanism as well. But I know you, you were doing some research and you had, you've seen some stuff in the mempool and maybe you want to provide some of that data. So the mempool currently has 46 blocks worth of data waiting, yet you can be in the next block with one Satoshi per byte which is pretty uncommon, I would say. So altogether, the memory usage of the mempool is 187 megabytes. So it's a little more than half full for the default limit running in the full nodes. So I guess we finally found the base block space demand for a while, at least until this fad is over. I saw somebody post earlier today that something like 600 megabytes worth of data was already written to the blockchain since inscriptions have become a thing. And yeah, I don't know. I've seen a few people come up with proposals to lower the block space, to get rid of the witness discount, to stop relaying transactions with inscriptions. And I don't know, feels like shooting with cannons on sparrows. And it's also kind of funny how there's like people that yesterday were censorship resistant maximalists today are calling for consensus changes to curb graffiti. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of curious to watch. I don't really have a, a beef in this fight. It's obviously not great that the box blockchain is growing faster than it used to, but beyond that, it, it's not going to do a lot of harm validation wise. It's not much slower. It does cost a little more bandwidth to download the blockchain eventually probably if you run a pruning node you can just cut it out away with the remaining block data i saw someone started working on making a patch to only prune witness data in bitcoin core already so that might also be an option eventually what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I'm curious. We can get in. There's some calls for mitigating this or, or trying to stop it at some level, but maybe we can jump into exactly what's being utilized here because I think these are taproot spends, right? W what is the taproot portion of this that is advantageous to taproot and not just SegWit? Basically, one limit that existed before taproot has been removed because Taproot improved how we calculate SIG hashes. Maybe that's not completely accurate, but basically it has become less expensive to have certain opcodes in scripts. And one of the reasons why we had multiple dimensions of limits on transactions previously just doesn't really exist anymore. So the only limit really, or one of the only limits is the transaction size that really curbs everything. 
So with Taproot, it is slightly easier to put more data into a transaction than it was just with SegWit. Previously, you would have probably had to split up a few things a bit more into separate pushes or even separate inputs if you got over a specific size. Well, with Taproot, you can actually put bigger images or data objects into a single input. What the inscriptions do is they push data directly into the witness data on basically a, a dead branch of the script where that is irrelevant for the payment authorization. But since it's part of the transaction, of course, it lands in the blockchain and thus can be used as a publishing mechanism. So other than something like open timestamp that proves that something existed where you still have to have an external provider for the actual data, these inscriptions are directly published on the blockchain, which, well, apparently is unlimited demand for publishing stuff on the blockchain, which we always knew. And... Basically, it has happened before, since 2014 at least, maybe earlier, where people would just write stuff to, to pub keys and bare multisigs or make up other non-standard scripts to maximize the data payload that they could write into the blockchain. In a way, it's just the same thing we did 10 years ago already. It's slightly more efficient because it gets a witness discount, but it also just goes to the witness, which is probably one of the best places it could go to. With Taproot, some of the limits were relaxed, which enabled this sort of inscription-type data stuffing to be done in a single transaction, whereas pre-Taproot, you could do that with SegWit, but it would take maybe a few transactions to cram all that data in. So it made it a bit easier. But then even without SegWit or the witness, you mentioned some alternatives, and I think Andrew Polstra got into that as well. Yeah, go ahead, Merch. Inputs, not, not transactions. So you could do the same thing with multiple inputs ever since SegWit, basically, and also put it in witness discounted data. It would have been a little more difficult to put it all together and read it as a single data blob, potentially, but not really a big hurdle. Yeah, and you mentioned, and Polstra got into this with his reply on the mailing list, which is there's just really no good way to prevent this. You can make it slightly more expensive, even if we didn't have witnesses or taproot or anything like that. You know, I guess grinding on signatures, or you mentioned the bare multisig as a way to put data in there, and it would be more expensive, but you could still achieve the same outcome of these JPEGs on the Bitcoin blockchain. Correct. Basically, the only way to prevent this sort of thing from happening would be if we restricted all of the network activity just to standard transaction. But even then, people could just do a multisig where the not used public keys are data objects. They would just hide it in something that looks like standard behavior, but actually isn't. There is no good way to curb this. I mean, that's not great. I don't care one little bit about NFTs or pictures in the blockchain but it also doesn't keep me awake at night. It's actually kind of interesting. A few months ago, people were concerned about the long-term fees, whether that would be enough to prop up the mining market. And now we seem to have a base demand. So we'll see. <laughs> there has been periods of history where people have seen things as spam that have gone into the Bitcoin blockchain. I think Satoshi Dice was one of those projects that was utilizing a significant portion of the Bitcoin blockchain for a while and was criticized for that. I think there was another project that was doing something similar to open timestamps, except for they were anchoring into the Bitcoin blockchain using a bunch of transactions and they were criticized for that. And I think those projects seem to have been priced out eventually, or the interest in those projects has waned and potentially something like that happens here again, where eventually these types of transactions are priced out and it solves itself. That's what happens. I mean, buying block space in bulk like this is going to be bound to be expensive. Even at one Satoshi per V-byte, each of these pictures is paying on the range of multiple dollars to get into the blockchain, which is probably a little too cheap right now. But as soon as other people need to up their transaction fees in order to get their regular transactions through, which for the average payment size that we've seen on the blockchain is easily magnitudes more than what inscriptions are currently paying. Those inscriptions are not going to have the priority. They'll still be waiting. So if in the night the demand for block space drops off or on the weekend, the network will start chewing through inscriptions and write them in the blockchain, I guess. But I think they will be very much a 
low priority backlog. And if enough activity happens to send priority transactions, payments or lightning channel opens and closes or who knows what else, then they'll just not happen at all. And that's exactly what happened in these other instances where people decried spam. I think the listeners want to know, Merch, how many inscriptions have you executed yourself? How many NFTs have you minted? Are you talking about the UTXOs that I've owned over the lifetime of doing Bitcoin transactions? No, it needs to be a JPEG blob. Uh, Zero. (laughs) Okay. Anything else you think is interesting on this topic before we move on? I don't know. It's kind of curious, but it's not really that interesting. This is probably the the least drama Twitter space, ordinals, inscription (laughs) Twitter space that there's been, just talking about it from the technicals. So I think we've probably exhausted that topic for now. Maybe there'll be more interesting discussions on the mailing list for next week. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to come up again. The second news item for this week from the newsletter is a summary of a call about mitigating LN jamming. And so we have Carla from Chaincode who's introduced herself and we've also had Clara on previously. You guys had an effort or you have an effort, I guess, to start having more regular conversations about channel jamming. We've gone through Merch and I as well as the newsletter a bunch of different discussions on this and and approaches. Maybe, Carla, do you want to start with just a quick summary of why this is important, why this is a concern, and then the different initiatives that are springing up to research and and address potential mitigations? Sure. So I think most folks on this call will know that jamming is an outstanding problem in the Lightning Network. It's pretty trivial to denial of service large portions or even the entire network by sending payments through the network really quickly or sending them through and giving them, waiting a long time for them to resolve because you can do this without really incurring any costs as an attacker. Because right now in Lightning, you don't pay for a failed payment attempt, you only pay for a successful payment attempt. And this is something that's been known about for years. I was actually looking up on the Optech topic page, my go-to, just to show the, the host for a second, when this was first discussed. And I think this is as early as 2015 that people started talking about this and ways that we could address it. And there's been many, many different proposals of how we could possibly fix this over the years, ranging from upfront fees to doing proof of someone in the route closing a channel to prove that somebody paid for this misbehavior to using routing tokens to allow people to prepay for their ability to route through. And this year, so last year, I guess, Clara and Sergi, who are researchers at Chaincode, put out a paper that proposed a solution which uses a combination of upfront fees and of local reputation tracking to address jamming, kind of with a combined approach to lock down all the various ways that people can try and work around that approach. So what I've been working on with Clara at the moment is taking that research paper and trying to turn it into an update to the Lightning specification. So actually going through it and saying, okay, how would we code this up? How would nodes communicate this and work on the solution? And we're doing these calls every two weeks in the hope that we can get a bit of momentum on this issue because lightning is getting pretty big now and it's still pretty vulnerable to this type attack and we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where someone chooses to spam the network and we all need to scramble and maybe put a subpar solution out there so we really want to have something preemptively in place for when if and when this does happen so we started this discussion with the upfront fees topic and what we're aiming to do is start with the most simple version of this and then improve upon on it until it's something that we think is incentive compatible for the network and would work out well. I can dive into more detail there, but that's kind of the, the spark notes of what we've been working on. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you for that overview. It sounds like this series of conversations that you're attempting to get the community around is to brainstorm the best solution, or do you think you have a solution and you're trying to garner consensus or support for that solution? I think that I feel pretty confident that what we've got with combination of upfront fees and local reputation will work very well. It is the case that something like this inevitably will sort of add some cost to using Lightning. So there's definitely an element of we need people to know about this and understand it and understand why we need it so that we can deploy it on the network. 
because we have wallets and we have lots of different players in the Lightning ecosystem. But there is another proposal as well that we're also discussing in these calls, which is the idea of using Sendaside. So we kind of have two horses in the race at the moment, and we're just trying to figure out which one of those will achieve our goals most efficiently. I'd say they're almost very similar because a reputation token, you need to make an upfront payment and then you get a token back versus making an upfront payment. You just make the payment along with your payment. So it has fewer steps. So it's just about deciding what's going to be the best mechanism to implement this sort of system in Lightning. So still reaching a technical consensus, but wanting to have people kind of folded in from the broader community from the beginning so they know this is coming and they understand why it needs to be added. The write-up in the newsletter mentioned the LSP specification working group, which wasn't something that I was familiar with. Uh, Can you explain what that group is? And is, is that who's joining these every two week calls or is it a broader audience? So I can do my best to explain that. I can't do it much justice because it's sort of a separate effort, but the LSP specification effort is a group of people who are working on the application level. So sort of wallet developers and people who would desire to run LSPs. And they're trying to figure out a common specification for things like selling a channel or rating a node or that kind of thing. So that that second layer on top of Lightning itself has some common interoperability so that you can, as an example, if you're a mobile wallet, if you have a common spec, you can switch between LSPs rather than be tied to one LSP if, you know, everyone's interactions work in the same way so folks from that group only hopped onto one call because the reputation side of things is something they're interested in in the context of you know if these people will be selling channels they need to know that the node that they're buying a channel from is a good node to purchase a channel from so there was some overlap there but primarily this is sort of the, the usual suspects of the lightning bolt specification process getting together every other week to talk about it merch anything that you'd like to ask So you said that you would like to approach the problem by going with the minimum viable approach and then maybe ratcheting up more parts to find the optimal solution. What is the minimum solution? So for upfront fees, the absolute most basic way that we could do this is that we express an upfront fee as a portion of your success case fee, right? So if you charge, you know, 10 sats to forward, then maybe 1% of that amount will be charged as an upfront fee. It makes a lot of sense to relate upfront fees to success case fees, because really what you're paying for in an upfront fee is the opportunity cost a node would have faced if they had successfully forwarded the payment, but your payment have failed. So the idea is that nodes will probably assume a default of 1% or they can advertise a custom policy no higher than 10% because having upfront fees higher than your success case fees makes no sense. And then senders will very simply just accumulate upfront fees along the route in the same way that we do for regular payments. And completely unconditionally, they would push these fees along the route. So say you're doing a three hop route and each of them need 10 sats of upfront fees. You'd push 30 to the first person. They'd push 20 to the next person leaving themselves with 10 and they'd push 10 to the next person leaving themselves with 10 so that's like a really easy really simple way of looking at this and that was the first thing that we did but the problem that we've run into there is that like which we actually didn't expect because we were first looking at this on a very theoretical level but lightning has fee differentials so if you've just joined the network maybe you have default fees they're really low compared to a really big routing node like a sync, which will have much higher routing fees in some cases. So this very simple mechanism suffers a bit of an incentives breakdown. So you've got one node that charges 10 sats of success case fees, and then the next node charges 100 sats of upfront fees. When you push that amount along to them, they get this payment and it arrives at them and says, oh, it's got 400 sats of upfront fees, which actually needs to be passed on to the next person. But hey, I was only going to get 10 sats of regular fees if I forwarded this. So why would I ever forward it? And they have an incentive to just take that upfront fee which is actually owed to the rest of the route and then just drop payment and then pocket the money. And the reason we have this kind of accumulating issue is that you have to source all of the funds for the upfront payment from the sender. If you don't, you just run into all sorts of issues where people can start maliciously forwarding payments through the network and failing them, trying to drain upfront fees. So it's really important that they come from the originating nodes so that an attacking party is always paying those fees. So the simplest solution, while easy, maybe won't be 
completely incentive compatible, which is not something we want because we don't want nodes to be disincentivized to forward. But when we start to look at how we fix that incentive compatibility, the complexity of the spec change starts to really blow up quite a bit. Oh, that's really a little bit of a roadblock that I hadn't anticipated. So in the theoretical way that it's been explained to me before, of course, I understood that at each hop, there's just a little bit of upfront fee. But given that you have to source it from the sender, now, if the first hop doesn't forward it, they can just keep the whole upfront fee. And you would never be able to even understand whether they maliciously kept it or there was an issue, right? So, or does this tie maybe together with the fat errors that used was proposing lately? Yeah, so that's another thing that we've chatted about actually in our most recent meeting on Monday is, yes, nodes could do this, right? They could once off drop payment, but there's also kind of more to consider in Lightning when it comes to just failing a payment for your own benefit. Because, I mean, every routing algorithm in Lightning will, once a node has failed a payment, they will no longer use that node. Say, oh, this one's not working and they'll go around it, right? So your ability to do this on an individual level would be very limited on a per sender case, right? Like if you steal my upfront fees, I say, oh, I don't know if you're a thief or you just don't have liquidity, but I'm going to send my payment elsewhere. Yoast, I've been looking at, they've now been renamed to attributable errors because I thought that's a bit of a better name, but Yoast has a proposed spec change, which I think is really great, which allows us to lock down who you can blame for a failure because previously people could just basically destroy the error and you would never be able to blame anyone. So it is a question for me that if we have the ability to perfectly pinpoint who's failed this payment down to either one node or a pair of nodes, and we have these routing algorithms that route around a node that fails, how bad can this be, right? But this is where it gets really fuzzy and really difficult to quantify in Lightning because sure, the payment algorithm will route around it depending on the location of the node. You know, there's lots of different senders in Lightning and they don't communicate with each other. So if you can steal a dollar from a million people, then you've still made a lot of money doing this. And obviously that's not the case right now. Lightning doesn't have the kind of volumes where this would really be a problem. They'd steal a few sats and they'd route around them. But do we want to deploy something now that isn't going to work in the future when maybe we do have this kind of volume. There's a topic on the Optech wiki, if you will, and it's about channel jamming attacks. And we outline there that there's sort of two categories of this attack. There's the liquidity jamming attack and HTLC jamming attack. It sounds like the mitigation for both of those could be this, some version of this upfront fee. Is there something that you have in your mind? Is one of those attacks, attacks more likely to happen or harder to mitigate than the other? Or are both of these equally part of your focus and part of the solution? So in terms of liquidity jamming versus HTLC jamming, I think that, you know, these are the two limited resources we have. We only have so much Bitcoin in our channel and we only have so many HTLC slots. And there are a bunch of parameters that you set when you open up channels saying, oh, this is the smallest HTLC I'll allow. This is the number of slots I'll allow. And I think that a rational attacker will just target whichever one of those is cheapest, right? So fundamentally, it is the same thing that either it'll do 483 of the smallest payment possible, or if it costs them less money, they'll just jam the liquidity. I'd say generally it, with the state of the network right now and the kind of values that people have on their minimum HTLC, you would just go for slot jamming because it's cheaper. But something that we do look at differently, and I imagine Clara would have spoken about this when she came on, is the concept of quick jamming versus slow jamming. So whichever one of these scarce resources an attacker chooses to take up, they can either attack by just constantly streaming payments through your channel which is quick jamming and then failing them back really fast or which you know kind of looks like regular payment activity it's more difficult to identify whether this is malicious or not although if you see a massive drop in your success rates maybe that indicates that someone is attacking you because it could also be that someone just wrote a really bad pathfinding algorithm and then there's slow jamming where they send an HLC through you and they hold it for the longest amount of time they can hold it without causing a false closure of their own channels. And that one is slightly easier to identify because it's pretty unusual for 
HLCs to be held for such a long period of time in Lightning. But there are a bunch of use cases like swaps and all sorts of interesting other stuff going on in Lightning that do have a legitimate use case for holding for a long period of time. So the way we think about this two-pronged solution is that the local reputation tracking, which we haven't really covered in this call, but the idea is that you can set some metric of what is good behavior. And if a node is behaving well, you reserve half of your, your scarce resources, be it your liquidity or slots for a good behaving node. And then if a node is behaving badly, you keep the other half or the bad behaving traffic. So when someone does choose to attack your node in whichever way, be it quick jamming or slow jamming, you degrade their reputation. And then people who are still behaving still have access to some of those slots and liquidity that are reserved for the non-attacking actors. And other regular traffic can still go through the untrusted buckets. But the problem with a solution like that, because maybe that would be the ideal thing and we just do that, is that anytime you have a threshold, someone can try and figure out what a threshold is and sit just below it. So the combination of a reputation tracking system that reserves liquidity and slots for a for good acting nodes and upfront fee, which will punish nodes that repetitively try and do this because they have to pay the routing node that opportunity costs. Together, they manage to lock down a very large amount of the surface area of jamming attack because it's kind of, you know, if you go one way, we're going to catch you in reputation. If you manage to evade reputation, you're still going to have to compensate nodes anyway. So doing the two together, I think, is a really important part of what we're looking at. We would always encourage folks who are interested to, to follow along with the research being done. And you guys have these calls every two weeks, and it looks like there'll be transcriptions of the calls for interested folks to follow along. So there's one potential call to action for interested parties there. Is there something you're looking for from the community other than kind of following along with these discussions? Are you looking for more wallet developers to attend these calls or maybe give a call to action for our audience if there is one? Yes. So anyone who's interested in keeping up with the spec development, we welcome you to join the call every other Monday. We had a technical mishap this week, but generally there will be transcripts available and I'll keep sending summaries to the mailing list so that folks can keep up. I think right now, while we're still figuring out the nitty gritty of what this would look like in the protocol, there isn't much need for wallet developers and kind of application level lightning folks to join those calls at the moment, the transcripts will probably be good enough. But I think just keeping up with the general awareness that if we want Lightning to be denial of service resistant, which seems like a pretty important property for a payment network to have, we are going to have changed something. And just keeping that awareness in mind as you build out things on top of the Lightning network is very important. Rusty opened the 2019 Lightning conference with Lightning is not always going to be free. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as you build on top of it. Merch, anything else on this news item? No, I think Carla covered it wonderfully. Yeah, thank you, Carla, for joining us. And, and hopefully you can hang on for a bit longer because I think there's potentially some lightning PRs later on that you'll have some opinions on that may be more informed than Merch and I. So if you can hang on, great. If not, we understand you got important things to do as well. Yeah, thanks for having me and I'll, I'll stick around for a bit. Great. Okay, we have a monthly segment that we do that covers the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club, and that is a weekly club that gets together on IRC and reviews Bitcoin Core PRs, and it's a very approachable, lurker-friendly way to get a variety of perspectives into the Bitcoin Core code base by looking at these different PRs. And this month, we covered in the newsletter, Track Adderman Totals by Network and Table, Improved Precision of Adding Fixed Seeds. And that's actually a PR by Martin, who's joined us. Martin, do you want to introduce yourself briefly before we walk through the PR Review Club and what you're attempting to do with this PR? Sure. So I'm, I work at Chaincode Labs. I'm working on Bitcoin Core, and I'm mostly interested in peer-to-peer -peer and also have done yeah, a lot of things with Adderman and Address Relay. So that's basically what I'm interested in. I think we could potentially jump into some of these questions from the PR Review Club, but I think it would make sense, Martin, if you give an overview of the PR and the motivation for it before we jump into some of those. Sure. Yeah, so this is basically the whole thing is part of a like larger project where we try to change the way that automatic connections are made with respect to different networks, because currently this is all very random, because we know of a bunch of addresses, and when we need to make an outbound connections, we'll just pick one at random, and if we have 
happen to know like 90% Tor addresses and 10% IPv4 addresses, then we'll pick, pick a Tor address. And if it's the other way around, we'll probably pick an IPv4 address. So there is currently no management with respect to that. And there isn't even a way to currently to tell in Bitcoin Core, like we now want to make a connection to a Tor or I2P or some other supported network. It's currently completely random. And this is the first step in an effort to change this. And the problem is that in order to make this thing that we can like targetly make a connection to a particular network, we would need to know how many peers we currently have from that network. Because otherwise, the way this algorithm works, we would get stuck in an infinite loop. And so this is basically the first part where we give the other man like a way to query it. And it just would just tell us, we currently have, I don't know, that many peers from this network and that many peers from that network. And also like the other man is, the address manager is like divided into two tables, new and tried. The new table has addresses that we haven't tested yet. And the try table has addresses that are of better quality because we at one point we had been connected to them and we can also like query with respect to these tables. So we could ask other men now, now how many new entries in from, I don't know, IPv4 do we currently have? And so that's the one part of this PR that we actually keep track of this information. And the second part of this information is where it's the first use case of this, where we use this kind of data. And this is related to the fixed seeds. The fixed seeds are a way of bootstrapping the node. If, for example, we, I mean, there are also like the DNS seeds that many people probably know about it, but these DNS seeds, they only give us addresses from IPv4 and IPv6. So if we want to have addresses from from Tor or, or I2P, then we cannot use them. So that, that's where the fixed seeds come in. These are coded addresses of potential peers and they are used like the first time a user would, would uh, open up their node and doesn't know any peers yet. So let's recap for a moment. So the fixed seeds, they are used to make an initial connection to a new network. We have the DNS seeds, but they only cover IPv4 and IPv6. So the ClearNet, Bitcoin Core has a bunch of other networks supported like I2P and Tor. And the fixed seeds that are being added in this PR, according to what I understand from Martin right now, are sort of a first contact in these networks. And once you contact these, they'll give you addresses of other peers. These get first added to your new table because whenever a peer tells you about some other nodes on the network, we don't know how accurate that information is, whether we actually can find a node there. So we separate these new addresses that we just learned about into the new bucket. And after our feeler connection tries these new addresses and connects to them once and gets a, a handshake and learns that there's an actual Bitcoin node responding on that connection, then it goes to the tried table. So when we tried to reconnect to the network, for example, after shutting down a node, we would pick a few of the nodes from the tried table to make initial connections to the network again. And generally, the tried table is sort of our our better quality bucket because we know that something can be reached there yet. Okay, so what this PR does with the fixed seed is that before we, if we don't have any addresses at all, then we only then would we query the fixed seed. And the change of this PR is that we now do this selectively network by network. For example, if we don't have any Tor addresses, but have many IPv4, IPv6 addresses, we will still query the fixed seed and load particularly the fixed seed for Tor. And this can be helpful if a user makes abrupt changes. Like before, they would only be connected to IPv4 and they would not accept any Onion addresses because we only accept addresses from networks that we currently support. And then the user might make a change and like switch from, from a ClearNet and go to only NetTor so that they make only outbound connections to Tor. And before that, they would be kind of stuck because the address man is not empty. So the fixed seat wouldn't be queried again. But they were, we also don't have any Tor addresses, so we would be kind of stuck and would need some manual intervention there. And now with this PR, in this situation where we have like a lot of ClearNet addresses but no Tor addresses, we would selectively load a fixed seed from Tor and then we can use them and to bootstrap into the Tor network. It's a situation that is not very common, but I guess it happens to some people and this will make it easier for people there. Cool. So this is a bug fix too. Um... Maybe a combative question. Isn't it sort of weird to trust these nodes to be our first contact in a new network? 
how have they been selected and how much trust do we put into these fixed seeds? Well, it's not something we like to do, but we need to bootstrap in some way, I guess. So they are selected like in each, before each time a new release is built for Bitcoin Core, people will select select some nodes that have been like online for a long time and well behaving. And so they suggest a list and this gets approved. And yeah, these are not handpicked. We don't know who they are. So they are just peers that seem to be good. And what's also important is we don't just you have like one or two we have like pretty large and hopefully it will be even more in the future of nodes and yeah so if a node makes a connection to one then even if that would be malicious it would also make connections to others and hopefully they're not all malicious it's hopefully something that a node only needs to do once in a lifetime and there's definitely some risk involved but yeah currently we don't have a better solution i would say Zooming out just a bit, you mentioned that this is a PR in a larger effort to improve outbound peer selection. And this leads to one of the questions that we highlighted in the newsletter, which is why would it be beneficial to have an outbound connection to each network at all times? Maybe speak to the broader motivation. Yeah, I think there are different reasons. One thing is like in order for the entire network of all uh, like subnetworks to, to keep together, it's important that there are nodes that make connections to more than one network. Otherwise, if everyone would only be in their own networks, there wouldn't be any connections and there wouldn't be partitions of the network and information wouldn't go from clearnet to Tor. That would be very bad. So it's important that some nodes do this. And so what I'm trying to do is the nodes that will volunteer to do this, that they actually get the connections because currently a node might say, yeah, I want to be on, I don't know, uh, CJDNS and ClearNet. And then they have like the thousands of ClearNet addresses and only 100 CJDNS addresses. And then they make no offline connections to it because there is no management currently. It's just randomness. And what the bigger effort is, is to like introduce a logic that, that helps a node to be at all times, we would like to have at least one output, outbound connections to each of the networks that we support to be on. I think this helps the network and it's also is helpful for the node itself, I would say, because having more networks to be connected on will improve resistance against Eclipse attacks. So an attacker that would uh, try to cover all of your connections slots would then also need to be active and dominant on all of these networks, which is a lot harder to do than if you're just on one network. So as a node operator, I help myself by preventing Eclipse attacks against me, which is a reason as a node operator we want to do that for themselves. And then additionally, by bridging all of these different networks that Bitcoin Core supports, you're also then preventing a potential partition within the network that, that may happen if there's different subgroups that are on different networks. You're, you're sort of bridging yes. that so the partition doesn't happen. Yes. And currently, I mean, node operators who want to do this, they can do this by, by opting to like make Make manual connections. So they will pick some peer from a network and manually say, I want to always make a connection to this. And this is nice and it's good, especially if you if you trust that peer. But it would be also nice to have this kind of thing automatically, have automatic support. So for people who don't want to go into the trouble of managing their connections and then checking if this manual peer is still online or maybe they have gone offline, so we need to pick another manual peer. So there's a lot of manual management there, which it would be nice if this could all work out of the box that we're always connected to all of the networks. So basically a manual workaround before your PR would have been that you run two nodes, one node that is only on the alternative network like Tor, for example, and one that is on the clear net. And then since you trust your own nodes, you connect those two nodes to each other. That way you make sure that you have a minimum amount of connections on either network. But of course that's like twice the work. But that's not actually what I meant. It's, I mean, that's a possibility, but that's way too much work. I mean, you can specify up to eight manual connections from this one node you have. And you can say, I want to make a connection to this one friend, which is on IPv4, and I want to make another connection, a manual connection to this other friend, which is on, on Tor. And I can have both of these at the same time with one node. I don't need two nodes for this. Right. Okay. Yeah, sure. So that would have been overkill, really, with the two nodes. But anyway, with this patch, essentially, we're making this happen automatically because each network that we want to support will have at least one connection at all times and yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah cool but that's still a work in progress what it's not done yet <laughs> <laughs> well thank you martin for your work on this i think it's important to make good behavior if you will or, or productive even for the individual node operator as well as benefiting the network something that is default so we applaud you for that we should also Note that while I did say that Martin was the author of this PR, and that's true, also Amidi also contributed to this. So thank you to her.
Anything else you think is important on this, Martin, or merch? I'm good. Okay, great. Thank you for joining us, Martin. You're welcome to hang on as we go through the rest of the PRs in this newsletter, or you're welcome to jump off and, and work on the next PR to, <laughs> to Actually, this project. looking at the next PR that we will be talking about, Bitcoin Core 25880, it's pretty useful that Martin is here because he's the author of that PR as well. Oh, perfect. So, <laughs> I mean, it would feel silly to explain to Martin his own PR, so I'm going to ask him to maybe give an overview of that one as well. Yeah, this is a completely different thing. It's about stalling. And the background is that sometime earlier this year, I did some IBD on a very slow connection. And I would see in the log that would like be like this peer has been stalling, is getting disconnected and another peer is getting, so all of my peers one after another would get disconnected. And for like a couple of minutes, I would make absolutely no progress during IBD. And I was wondering what the hell is going on there. And this is basically an effort to fix this kind of thing. It only happens if you're doing IBD on a very slow connections. And the problem is with stalling during IPD, we do like parallel download of blocks from different peers, but we have like only so many blocks ahead that we download. So it's, I think, 2,024 blocks. We do like ahead of our current tip that we have connected to the blockchain. We download all these fronts, all these blocks in advance. And at some point, if we cannot make any progress because this 2,024 windows is exhausted and we need the first one from this window in order to connect it to the blockchain and let the window slide further ahead. In that case, we are in a stalling situation. So this only happens if some of our peers are faster and some of our peers are slower, and one slow peer is stalling all the progress there. So the question is, once we are in this situation, how do we deal with this? And what we did before and still do is like we give this peer like the stalling peer two seconds, and then we disconnect it if they did if they don't give us a block. And that is fine because that peer it has been stalling a block download for a long time probably, and the two seconds are like a kind of a last resort of thing, and then we just don't want to have it anymore and, and try to get the block from another peer. So the problem is that the second peer then we would only also only give it two seconds and if it doesn't give us the block in two seconds then we would still we would boot it, kick it again and then go to the next peer and this would be like a cascade of failures if we just are not able to download a block in two seconds because our connections is too slow maybe we are on tour or something and we need five seconds for a block or four seconds because it's just our connections. And this was the problem there. And the fix that was merged for this is that we do this like in adaptive way. So we still give the first peer only two seconds, but then we double it for the next peer. So the next peer gets four seconds to give us a block. And if they do this, fine, then we have made progress. But if they don't, they get kicked after four seconds. And then the next peer gets eight seconds. So it has more, even more time. And hopefully then this peer will give us the block in these eight seconds. And yeah, and then we can like connect other blocks and make progress and continue with IBD. And yeah, so that's what this PR basically did. It made this timeout adaptive, not, or not only two seconds as a fixed value, but like double it. I wanted to jump in and reiterate a little bit how the situation comes to pass. So in Bitcoin Core, when we're not at the chain tip, we're just trying to get all the block data. We don't participate in transaction gossip. We don't trade addresses much. We're only connected to outbound connections and ask them to give us a copy of the blockchain. And because it would be really slow to only get the next block and then wait, process that, get the next block after that, we sort of create a buffer of blocks that we want to process. So we download the next 1,024 blocks from all of our peers. So to the eight or so peers that I have, I go like, hey, could you give me this block? Could you give me that block? And so forth. And whenever one of them has given me one of the next few blocks, I tell them to give the next one that I don't have yet. So if one of our connections is super slow and still working on that first block that we asked him to give us, and all the other nodes have provided all the blocks up to 1,024 in the future, then we stall. We cannot make progress because, of course, to process the blockchain, we still have to locally read the blocks in order, adapt the UTXO set to the inputs and outputs that were on the transactions. So when one of them is still promising to give us the next block and hasn't delivered yet, and we have 1,024 other blocks waiting or requested, then we kick in. And this is then the whole situation that Martin explained comes to pass. And I think the last thing from the write-up that comes to mind is 
as soon as we start getting blocks again, we will start scaling back the timeout again. We double it each time we don't get a block, but then once we have that block, of course, we will also have a few stored very likely ahead, like a buffer of work to go through. And we also start scaling back the, the timeout block by block. Yeah, that's somewhat correct. timely of a PR as well, since we recently had a, a four megabyte block, right? Yeah, that would have been a candidate to, to lead to this kind of situation, definitely. And also like the two seconds, it was suggested a long time ago at a time where blocks were much, much slower. So it's it wasn't probably a problem back then because the blocks were so small then. And I mean, first SegWit came and made like the physical amount of that you need to download larger and blocks also were getting fuller. So at the time where this was suggested, this two seconds made a lot of sense, I would say, because blocks were maybe, I don't know, 100 kilobytes or 500 kilobytes or something. But now it doesn't really make that much sense anymore because i mean the not all connections speeds scaled in the same way that the blocks became larger over time thanks for walking us through that pr martin i, I missed that you were the author perfectly were able to join us and, and walk us through that i think we can move on to the next one we have a lot of lightning stuff this week so it looks like core lightning is gearing up for their next release and they are merging a few things. I think that's led to us having four PRs or five actually mentioned here. So Core Lightning 5679 adds a new plugin. I think Rusty added this so that when you query your Core Lightning node and want to list some information that your node is tracking, like your channel connections or your peers, that you can actually also run SQL queries directly on the result of that list. So rather than needing to get the data, then put it into some other SQL database in order to search it, you can search directly on the results. Yeah, that seems really useful. E even there's some Bitcoin RPCs that I know I've written code in the past that would have to then go through after you get the list and then filter it client side, whereas this is you provide the query that does the filtering on your behalf. So it seems like a useful feature. Next PR here is Core Lightning 5821, which adds a pre-approved invoice and pre-approved key send RPCs. And that essentially, if you're attempting a payment, you need to get a signature. And for Core Lightning, they have this signing module that will sign for you. But the, these PRs add the ability to essentially make sure that, hey, is the signer going to sign for this? So there could be some policies in place or rate limiting, et cetera, et cetera, in which cases the, the signer wouldn't sign. And the way to do that now is just attempting the payment and then failing, whereas these PRs allow you to say, hey, are you going to sign for this? And then you can make sure that you don't attempt that you know what you have the potential knowledge of would be a failed payment. Yeah, it sounds like people are really starting to think of how to make Lightning work for bigger businesses that run HSNs and have a lot of funds under their, in their nodes. Well, speaking of, of large Lightning nodes, the next Core Lightning PR 5849 made some backend changes to allow a Core Lightning node to handle over 100,000 peers, each with one channel. I think this was sort of a, an exercise to see where the performance bottlenecks would be in doing such a thing, because as we know in the newsletter, it would take a, a dozen blocks or more to open that many channels if you were just monopolizing the block space. So I think it's an interesting way to think about trying to find performance improvements in Core Lightning. Next PR here is another Core Lightning PR. It's 5892. And there's actually, TBAST did a quite comprehensive write-up that's referenced in this PR. And there's a ton of data and ton of information and even some diagrams showing how there's some compatibility testing that he had done that, that points out some incompatibilities and this core lightning PR fixes a bunch of those with regards to the offers protocol compatibility. Yeah, so we talked about Bolt 12 a few times in the past few months. This is something that is gearing up to happen. It is essentially a drop-in replacement for the Bolt 11 invoice protocol with even more capabilities. And my understanding is that Core Lightning and Eclair have interoperability on testnet now. LDK, I think, is starting to work on Bolt 12 support. They have a few small parts ready, but aren't quite there with the interoperability yet. Whereas LND does not seem to be working on Bolt 12 yet, from what I understand. 
We now have Eclair PR here, 2565, that requests that funds from a closed channel go to a new on-chain address rather than an address which was generated when the channel was funded. Merch, I don't know why that's the case. Isn't the new, it wasn't the address that was generated when the channel was funded also a new on-chain address that in theory wouldn't be used? And I guess I need some education on this one. I was wondering the same thing. I would expect that if you make a lightning channel and generate an address as the dedicated closing destination afterwards, that you would keep that dedicated to that channel's closing amount. But it seems to me that maybe Eclair here would generate a new address, and as long as the address hadn't been used yet, it would use the same one as the closing destination for multiple channels. So either way, when you make a bilateral close, like a closer channel in cooperation with your channel partner, then you can send the money wherever you want anyway, because it's just a matter of negotiating with the channel partner. So it seems to me that they are making use of that here to just say, oh, let's let's see if we might want to give a new address instead of the one that we had negotiated potentially months ago. But yeah, I, I don't know for sure what exactly the, the cause was that the address wouldn't have been fresh. Yeah, that was the only thing I could think of as well as if that fund that you would, where you'd get the channel closing would potentially be reused. That was the only thing I could think of. Obviously, a lot of things can happen in the months that a channel could be live. So there could be various reasons that you'd want the funds to go somewhere else. So I, I guess it makes sense to provide this regardless. I mean, one downside of keeping a lot of addresses set aside for closing channels would be that you would have a very big gap of addresses that didn't get used. So maybe that's a concern here. Yeah, I guess if you're opening up hundreds of channels, then I guess depending on the gap limit in the software, that could potentially be an issue. But I guess we're just theorizing at this point. Next PR here is from LND, 7252, adding support for SQLite as LND's database backend. And that's only supported on new LND installations. And there is no code for migrating from an existing database. I, I think that by default, does it use Postgres in LND? Do you know? Dimly remember that they had other work to migrate great to yeah postgres i'm not 100% sure whether that is now the backend uh, by default lnd used to have a self written what was it just value data storage like pairs or something and it got a lot faster when it went to postgres was my understanding Yes, I think there was, I forget the name of the key value store, E something, but yeah, they had a key value store and Postgres as potential data sources as well. So now, now you have SQLite. Last PR for this week is LND 6527, adding the ability to encrypt the servers on this TLS key. And so it sounds like LND uses this TLS key for authenticating remote connections if you're controlling your node remotely. And that right now that, that TLS key was not encrypted and was sitting in a plain text file, which if someone got access to that, they could spy on your communication with your server. Whereas now this TLS key is encrypted and needs to be unlocked before you're using it. That sounds like we got through all of it. I'm glad that we had so many guests today and they brought all their expertise to, to explain their PRs to us because and their newsletter and mailing list posts. <laughs> so yeah. I think we got it all in. Excellent. Well, thanks to my co-host, Merch. Thank you for Martin, special guest, joining us. And thank you for Carla as well for joining us. And we'll see you back here next week where we recap newsletter number 238. Thank you all for your time. Bye. Cheers.